Alert Medic 1 respond. Box area 19 You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Alert Medic One podcast. It's uh, Ken Sanner here, one of your hosts, along with my good friend. Hey, guys, Mr. it's Moose. Thank you. Hey, and we have our special guest, Erin Berry. She's a nurse. She's a flight nurse, and she's going to tell us all about ECMO. It's a great topic. It's something that a lot of us know a little bit about, but very few of us know a lot about. Uh, so I think we're going to jump right into it uh, because it's a great topic. So, uh, yeah, let's get into it. So ECMO, what's it stand for? So ECMO is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and ECMO, if you can go – Back into the history, it's it was created at University of uh, Michigan. Uh, ECMO used to be strictly a, a pediatric treatment, um, and then over I don't know when it really bridged over to adults, but it's it's kind of bridged over into adult critical care, and it's really been amazing, specifically with all of the flu um, that's been going around getting um, these young, healthy people with these horrible flus and pneumonias and getting them through that. And then also, um, also interestingly, the eCPR programs that are popping up everywhere, ECMO has played a huge role in that and getting people, it's, it's increasing survival for things that you just weren't seeing people survive. Could you go into, and maybe you're already going to be going into it, but like specifically EPC, eCPR stuff, because that blows my mind. Like how, like how that even has an effect. Like that's amazing. So with with your eCPR, it's your patients that have gone into cardiac arrest, specifically the ones that are in like a refractory arrest, like can't get them out of VFib. Um, but you, you just, you know, that there is a reversible cause. Like you had a witnessed arrest, you know, that this person's got some type of MI and you know, if you can just kind of like get them through this, they're going to come out. So you crash cannulate them on VA ECMO to give their, basically their heart time to recover. Like it gives you a chance for interventions. If you haven't already taken them to the cath lab, now you can take them to the cath lab and then it just gives the heart the time, the rest that it needs to get better. Uh, so you mentioned VA ECMO. I think that's a good uh, transition into telling us the different types of ECMO, right? Correct. There are So there's two different types of ECMO, and you want to pick the right ECMO for what you need. So you've got VV ECMO called venous, venovenous ECMO, and then you've got VA, which is venoarterial ECMO. And with your venovenous ECMO, what you're doing is replacing what the lungs are doing. With your venoarterial, you're replacing not only what the lungs are doing, but you're also replacing what the heart is doing. So these patients in full-blown arrest, VA ECMO is gonna give them what they need. But if you've got um, an RZ patient who's got the flu and pneumonias and their lungs just need some time, you know your VVD ECMO is gonna be what's right for you. So you're gonna have 
So the ECMO itself does a couple different things. We'll start with just VV ECMO. Your VV ECMO is going to do both oxygenation and remove CO2. So you can be hypoxic and hypercarbic and VV ECMO is gonna fix both of those for you. And then your VA ECMO is gonna be able to do both the hypoxia and the hypercarbia, but it's also gonna be able to do circulatory support. Um, and the oxygenation and the CO2 removal are accomplished through like a little, a little oxygenator that flows oxygen and mixes it with the blood and basically does what the lungs aren't able to do. And then it's also got something called a sweet fluid that's coming through and pulling out that CO2. And then the VA is, is basically what it's adding is a pump that's providing circulatory support. So how does, how does the, um, and I, I don't know where I have this mental image from, but I feel like I have, from what I remember, there's like this retrograde, uh, circulation so like uh, I've, uh, maybe it's VA ECMO or VV ECMO I don't know so you can see um, recirking with VV ECMO patients that are um, peripherally cannulated I what probably what you're talking about is so there'll be so you can be peripherally cannulated and you can be centrally cannulated so a peripherally cannulated patient typically you're going to go in your big vessels. So you're going to go in your IJ, you're going to go in your femoral. And if you say you've got, so you're going to have two sites, you're going to have a site that pulls blood out and a site that pushes blood back in after it's been treated. So if you, let's say you've got a right femoral and a right IJ access, and those cannulas are too close to each other, the cannula that's returning your oxygenated blood it can just be shooting that oxygenated blood straight into the cannula that's pulling out and you're getting a phenomenon called recirculation. So that's been fixed is just being sucked and pushed back through the system and not delivered to the patient. You're circulating blood, right? And anytime blood is being pushed through anything that's not, I feel like, organic, you have to worry about lysing, right? And mechanical. Oh, so, yeah. You, you've got that. a couple of couple of concerns. You've got lysing, which is a concern, especially with VA ECMO, because you're pumping. And then you also have a concern of clotting. Yes. So it's twofold. Um, the clotting is typically accomplished through heparin. So when these patients get initially cannulated, they get a big old bolus of heparin, and then they'll, they'll typically be put on a heparin drip. And then for the lysing, it's typically controlled through pump speed. So if you're seeing a lot of lysing, you try and back off the flow rate to see if you can get it going a little bit slower and still accomplish the goal that you're looking for. How are you going to know if, if your patient's having lysing, what, what are they going to present with that? You're going to be like, oh, we've got an issue going on right now. So you'll see like um, sometimes you'll see like a breakdown of the red blood cells in the urine. So the urine will change color. Um, you'll see issues with like low, low levels. Um, lysing is typically less of a concern than clotting. Clotting is your big concern. Okay. Are you shooting for a target INR or how does that work? You're typically shooting for um, a target PTT and it's been a while since I've been at the bedside. So I, I honestly don't remember what their goal is. Okay. And uh, I guess we, we could talk in a separate episode on like what INR and PTT is, I guess, but um, just do you want to give a quick summary of? So INR um, is 
there is two different ways to measure your coagulation and different medications impact uh, different, different measurements. So let's say you've got a patient on Coumadin, you're gonna be checking their INR because that's what's gonna be impacted. And say you've got a patient on heparin, you're gonna be checking their PTT value because that is the factor like in the coagulation cascade that's gonna be impacted by heparin. And then you've got these weird ones where you've got like Xarelto that there's nothing you can test. Mm -hmm. So there, uh, when we are, uh, what was I gonna say? So you have these ECMO patients that you have essentially taken over their heart or their heart and their lung, right? Um, oftentimes right. these are patients that were bridging, right? Towards right. A lot of, so yeah, there's definitely, um, you can bridge to heart transplant, you can bridge to VAD, you can bridge to lung transplant. So, um, uh, and that's a, does, doesn't that open up a potential for a huge, like, ethical dilemma like say you know an organ doesn't present i mean which i i know they do yeah so um yeah sometimes things are referred to like as a bridge to nowhere um so with the ecmo a lot of ecmo is used as a bridge to lung transplant and these patients can be on ecmo for very long periods of time they actually have um a special cannula where you just have one access site, it's called it. <clears throat> it's called an Avalon catheter that they can use for these long-term ECMO, like VB ECMO patients that are just waiting for a long. Um, and yeah, there there can be some ethical um, considerations with the uh, with the long-term ECMO. Um, I definitely know of patients that have been removed from the, like the long-term life support because just nothing's coming available for. Now they also have, uh, you know, so just like how you would have with like uh, an LVAD, you have, uh, you know, pipes going into your body through openings in your skin. So that opens up a yeah. uh, risk for infection, right? Yeah. So how, uh, are there like uh, a specific antibiotic regimens that are usually prescribed? So it's, it's more about line care for those patients. So the nurses that are taking care of these patients long-term in the ICUs, there are very very regimented about how they take care of these lines and the types of dressings that they put on them um, and how often they're changing those dressings. That's, that's going to be like your front line from preventing infection is like maintaining the cleanness with the dressings. Okay. So, and I think often this is, doesn't happen a lot at all, but you're never going to be, I guess you're tracking temperature just like anything else and inflammation at the site and, you know, uh, purulent discharge at the site. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that and okay. temperature gets a little tricky with ECMO because um, because you're pulling it's it's um, if you've ever it, and it's similar to the continuous dialysis that you do. Anytime you're pulling um, blood, like all of your blood, and exposing it to room temperature and putting it back in, you obviously have a heater or you have you're you're controlling the temperature, but it's very easy to miss temperature changes because the way the equipment operates like you you will eventually you will often catch it because you're not having to warm the blood as much so that's kind of a trigger but they'll be checking like blood cultures and other things on these patients and white counts and temperature is probably not going to be your first sign so and i honestly i have a ton of questions so the the next thing that i want to bring up is something that you opened my eyes to aaron is the who are the people that are managing these uh uh ecmo machines 
So ECMO machines um, in the OR, they're always managed by something called a perfusionist. Um, once you get out into the ICUs, it can vary, um, but they all have special training. So a lot of, they'll call it sitting pump, but there'll be either a perfusionist or um, a lot of hospitals will train respiratory therapists to sit pump. And some hospitals will even train nurses to sit pump and kind of watch the flows, um, watch levels on gases, uh, make adjustments to sweep, make adjustments to FiO2, make adjustments to flow rates. But it's it does require um, an amount of specialized training. And uh, a lot of perfusionists are actually uh, master's degrees. Uh, that, that's what I found after you told me about, like, that, that thing exists. You know, like, the career exists. I uh, looked into it. And there are a few bachelor's program, uh, programs, but a lot of them are. Uh, yeah, they're, they're extensively trained yeah. professionals. And they... Uh, uh, they they make around how much like a PA would make or an like they make yeah, it's, very it's, good it's, money it's yeah. good money yeah, yeah. and uh, um, so I I've I spoke to one for the first time when I shadowed uh, one of the one of my physician friends who works at the LRU and uh, it is tremendous how much technical know how along with physical no uh, excuse me physiological know how you have to have to do that job. Yeah, they're um, yeah. they're incredibly intelligent people. Quite literally, you have the person's lungs or heart and lungs in your hands to manage. Yeah, you yeah. you are you're you can make or break that patient. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's definitely uh, interesting. So I want to go into procedure, how we actually okay. cannulate these patients, and then uh, let's open up the discussion to how the uh, the the famous French pre-hospital picture of uh, ECMO. Okay occurred like how can that how do we get to that point so um the cannulation process is if you've ever seen someone put in a central line um you got a little needle you use your ultrasound and you poke it in the vessel and you size it up except this time you're going to really just keep sizing it up sizing it up sizing it up to like i mean they're essentially garden hoses so you're gonna you're gonna pick your sites depending on um, what you're trying to accomplish, VA or VB. Um, like I said before, the usual access points for a, a venous access is going to be your IJ. Um, for venous or arterial, you can go femoral. Um, you could, I've even seen where, well, I haven't personally seen it, but I've read where you can get axillary access as well, but I, I've never personally seen that. Um, so it's going to be like any other line placement, you're going to prep your site. And then you're going to start um, ramping up, getting it bigger, getting it bigger, getting it bigger till you get your garden hose in. And then clamp that one garden hose off. And then you're going to put in your second garden hose. And then, and mind you, there's chaos going around behind you because these are the sickest of the sickest patients. They're incredibly unstable. You're trying to keep their blood pressure up. You're trying to... Um, keep their oxygen levels as high as you can keep them. Um, so it's kind of like a little circus going on behind them and they're just putting these garden hoses in people. So you get your second garden hose in and then you get them, you, you do what you call putting them on pump. And this is usually the most chaotic period and then everything just calms down beautifully. But once as you're ramping them up on pump, 
patients typically can get incredibly unstable. So you've always got like a slew of drugs at your bedside that you're ready to push. Specifically, you're going to be doing epi, you're going to be doing um, calcium chloride, and you're going to be doing bicarb to try and get them get them over the hump of getting used to being on the pump. And then the beautiful thing about ECMO is once you get them up and running, everything gets really easy. If the pump is running right and the cannulas are in the right place, these patients um, get so stable. Like you'll see um, specifically the VA patients, you've got them on every presser known to man completely maxed out. You get them on pump, and now you have to put them on an icardipine drip. So how stay on ECMO uh, safely? So there are people that are on ECMO for upwards of a year or greater. Um, oh. Like your your patients waiting for your transplant, specifically your lung transplant. Um, but there's not really like a hard and fast end date. Um, but I, I mean, you wouldn't want to stay on for a year, but there are people that are on for very long periods of time. So That's who's typically in the room during one of these procedures? So um, typically you'll have a cardiac surgeon that's placing the lines because they're, they're, they're fairly familiar with it from um, coronary bypass grafts when the patients are put on bypass. Um, so you'll have a couple cardiac surgeons in the room putting in the lines or depending on where you work, you would have maybe a trauma surgeon because there are several trauma surgeons over at University of Maryland that will cannulate for ECMO or even some ED physicians are being trained on how to do um, ECMO cannulation specifically for like the, the ECPR. So you'll have, um, you'll have your doctors in the room. You'll have a couple nurses because they're going to be managing your drips. They're going to be pushing drugs, um, keeping the patient as comfortable as possible. You're going to have um, an RT in the room if they're vented, because believe it or not, um, we've actually, we you will cannulate for VA ECMO sometimes with a non-vented patient. I've done it before. Um, oh, yeah, that was the one that I saw, and it the guy was awake like before and then that that was actually one of my next questions like what agents are usually used if they are awake to sedate them because uh well no comment i'm not going to say anything about that (laughs) but uh yeah it was just so you're you're gonna have nurses you're gonna have rts you're gonna have physicians um if you've got techs on your unit that's awesome because then you've got someone running for stuff for you but i would say I mean, bare minimum I've had in a room is three people, and that's a bad day. But um, if one doctor and two nurses, um, but typically you'll have a couple physicians and a couple nurses, and you'll have your perfusionist there. Uh, I want to talk about the drugs that you use. So you mentioned epi, you mentioned calcium, and you mentioned bicarb. So epinephrine, obviously self-explanatory why we're using it right uh calcium are we is the goal to promote cal- uh, um, uh, cardiac contractility or yes it's, okay. that's exactly what it is it's cardiac contractility okay and then um, bicarb is for generalized acidosis reversal or yes what? okay yeah okay. yeah generalized acidosis um so in reg- terms of sedation and this kind of goes back to um the uh so if you guys didn't listen to our tbi episodes definitely go listen to them uh you're probably looking for sedatives that are uh, uh 
neutral to your you know your vital signs right so you if you have right. realistically these patients are going to be hypotensive right because they're not mm-hmm. circulating um th- so uh, what are some sedative agents that you all you have used or you've seen used in the past because i think you'd want to shy away from say a, a versed or you know or a benzodiazepine and you probably lean towards maybe like an intomidator or ketamine or how would how would that work yeah. So it, it kind of, it's, it's obviously patient dependent there. Um, the one, um, we did you. So oftentimes with a VA ECMO cannulation, it can be for a pulmonary embolism, like a massive pulmonary embolism. And these patients, um, are incredibly, incredibly sick, incredibly labile. Um, so you're cannulating them and sometimes the only thing you're doing is lidocaine at the insertion site and, a lot of hand holding. Um, mm. and then other times a little bit of fentanyl is, can be helpful. Um, we've definitely used ketamine. Uh, and then on your, your VV patients, these are patients that are, um, you've typically thrown everything at them that you can to get them to ventilate. Right. So these are patients that are paralyzed. These are patients that are on, you know, um, high doses of sedation already just to try and get them to be ventilated. So they're on propofol, they're on ketamine, they're on whatever you can get them on to get them down. Okay. Um, what was I going to say? So just like how you would have ventilator dependence, um, after a while, um, I'm sure you have to have close uh, PT, right, with these patients, because I'm sure that if your patient stays on ECMO, they're uh, if you're if you're not exercising them, if the goal isn't to bridge them and just rehabilitation. Yeah, right? specifically with the bridged patients, they um, the LRU over at University of Maryland is excellent at keeping these patients moving. You will see someone walking the halls with um, an RT yes. with the vent and a perfusionist pushing the pump because they're going to keep them moving. That, that and that blew my mind. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing, and I'm I'm sure. Um, and that, and I know them well just because they lived next door to us when I worked at the CCRU. But I know other units are are doing just as well. These patients are they're getting them up, they're walking them, PTs working with them, um, especially the long term cases. No, this is just a, it's really a fascinating perspective because when you think about an ECMO patient, um, you know these are patients that are really sick, uh, you know, or else they wouldn't be on ECMO. So we talked a little bit about MI. We talked a little bit about PE as being reasons that people end up on ECMO. Are there any other issues that uh, commonly lead to patients needing ECMO, or at least as common as you know ECMO can be? You mentioned uh, LVAD patients, so you know severe heart failure. Um, what else are we looking at? So we're looking at those those flu patients that we're getting in that are just sick as not, like the ones like especially like those weird strains that are getting like the young, healthy, strong men that are just knocking them out. And then they're getting these horrible pneumonias. Um, when, when winter comes in and flu season comes around, uh-huh. there's been times where hospitals run out of ECMO circuits. So how about some of these uh, vape related illness patients? Uh, that could be uh, something. I mean, it, it could be, yeah. Anything that's causing like significant lung injury, um, could definitely be a candidate for ECMO. I shared okay. a meme the other day that said something like, unless you've seen a 20-year-old 
be uh, taken off of, terminally taken off of ECMO. Don't tell people not to get vaccinated for the flu. And I shared it, even though I've never seen that. But like, um, I uh, it, it it does blow my mind. Just a you know a little bit of a tangent like that. How much the flu can just snow the healthy twenty four year old, otherwise mm-hmm. no comorbidities, no health issues, and just there. Yeah. So. Um, Cool. So you said uh, you mentioned the flu and then the uh, the other ailments that we discussed. The um, I, I do want to transition to uh, I'm sure what folks are thinking about, and and I I know that I I initially when I saw the picture, um, I was fascinated by it. But how do we like so how do we get to the point where we are doing pre-hospital ECMO? Like, how how do you from a from a, someone who has been a core part of that team, what aspects do you see integral to the pre-hospital team, and yeah, let's talk about that first, and then I'll ask my yeah. other question. So it's it's a lot of training um, to be able to get to that point. Um, it's like I said, it's it's just like putting in a line, but you're putting in a really big line, and you need especially in the field where you don't have um, a whole hospital full of resources, you have to be like hundred percent on your A-game trained like immensely well. Um, and getting people um, to that level of training, I think would be one of the hurdles that would have to come over to be able to get to that level here. And then also, um, you mentioned how many people you said minimum was three and that was a bad day. Yeah. Um, the sheer resources that you would need, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, if we, and I don't mean to sound pessimist when I think, I think that's a common theme that happens when we end up discussing advanced practice stuff on this podcast. I, I don't, I don't mean to seem pessimistic, but, um, I think, uh, and I think Ken's on the same page with me, the amount of education training but also the infrastructure you need around you to be able to do these advanced practice things. Um, the uh, Not only would you need the, like the education, the training, but the equipment, right? right. And the, the one thing that often fo- I feel like folks forget is the uh, you, you need to practice that skill. If it's a once-a-year ECMO, then – you're not going to be proficient, right? It's, I think similar right. conversations are start, you know, are going on about inter, and you know, just endotracheal intubation, right? Um, yeah. With like you know, uh, credential saturation and stuff like that, we, you know, we just don't get the volume that you need to be uh, efficient, right? And not efficient, but uh, right. what's the word? Competent. Yeah. yeah, proficient. Yeah. Exactly in that skill. Um, so. But that being said, like, I, I think models that utilize, like, I mean, obviously they've, they're successful in Europe with, you know, the physician led model, the pre-hospital mm-hmm. physician led model with a, um, they call them, and I'm not too familiar with, uh, you know, the, uh, with, uh, what, what is it? The national health system or whatever, the NHS, right. um, they usually have an advanced practice paramedic who for us, an advanced practice paramedic is someone that goes to UMBC for two weeks over there, it's like a master's degree that's equivalent to a PA, right? Um, right. So um, I, I envision us that's hopefully at some point getting to a level like that. Um, but I just wanted to paint a bit of a picture of, you know, with this episode of what is actually happening with these patients, how critical they are, um, how, uh, um, 
how should I say? I shouldn't. I don't want to use the word risky, but how uh, I don't even know what the correct word is. But how I mean, it, it is how risky of a procedure it is, and how fragile of a procedure it is, um, <laughs> and how many things have to go right to successfully do it. Um, right. For and I and I think and and Ken, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I think first and foremost, we like you said, education, training, um, and but also the infrastructure to you know yeah. to to be able to make that happen. You, Sorry, you yeah. could be, almost be so you know how there's like um, like the trauma go team, yeah, for shock trauma where they can fly the physician to the field. I think um, you would almost want to set it up something like that with an ECMO go team. Um, Ken, what were you gonna say? No, I was just going to say, you know, I really unfortunately don't have a lot of hope that we're going to see anything like this in the United States anytime soon. There are some really progressive and aggressive EMS systems out there um, where you you may get physician buy-in and, you know, medical directors responding to the scene and doing something like this. But I mean, as education stands right now in the United States when it comes to EMS, we can't even agree that a paramedic should take biology and anatomy and physiology before they start their class, let alone, you know, doing something, you know, like this. I think a lot of times we think about, you know, it's just a skill, it's just a drug, we can just do it. Um, And for some things that is true, but for other things, there really needs to be more training and practice and education you know, before we do something really radical. And I may be being pessimistic myself, but, um, you know, I've talked to paramedics who don't understand how the electrical system of the heart works and they're practicing paramedics. So um, maybe maybe I'm in a pessimistic mood today. Uh, (laughs) And, and, And honestly, though, like, and we're not trying to, we're really not trying to be pessimists here. What the goal, and we, you know, Dr. Wittberg mentions it. I feel like every episode that we talk, we, we try to mention it. The goal of this podcast is to elevate the, you know, the, the clinical practice of what our profession does on an everyday basis, right? Um, we want to promote the safe practice, but the advanced practice of, e- of EMS clinicians, right? Um, and we've been using the term clinician, uh, you know, and that's something that, you know, started, you know, at my agency recently after uh, the change of executive re- leadership. And I 110% support that change because um, even, you know, we look at our nurse partners, like you're getting your master's degree in a specialized aspect of nursing, right? Um, and just like that, there's advanced nurse practitioner training, right? And stuff like that. And um, we, I, I think we want the, when I say we, I mean the paramedic profession wants the respect that you all get as nurses, that PAs get as PAs, that physicians get as physicians, because quite frankly, we do do a job where the skills we get to do outside of the hospital, only advanced care providers are doing in the hospital, right? And the, and the role that we're taking, that provider, that provider role where we are approaching a patient, making, you know, assessing them, making a diagnosis and treating them, we are functioning as independent providers. So I think that we get a chip on their sh- our shoulder to a point, but then we also don't have the education to back it up. Um, I can't agree with Ken enough on the, uh, like the, the, what he said about the electrical system. Um, what's the point of a paramedic being able to ultrasound if they don't know where the spleen is? Yeah. Qu- quite frankly, like, what's the point? Why are you doing a fast exam if you don't know what you're looking at? And I'll be the first one to say, like, I know where spleen is, but when I was looking at that ultrasound probe when I did that class, I'm, I had no idea what I was looking at. Um, 
But and that, I don't, I yes. don't mean to be a pessimist because yeah. I, I would love to see stuff like this come to EMS. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think we just have a long way to go. You know, and, so and ultimately, you know, and you can you know, on our website we have our you know the four mission areas. Um, ultimately, it comes down to patient care and better patient outcomes. And I fundamentally believe if we advance our education, we ad- advance our um, practice safely um, and in a measured approach with, uh, and, and this is where Dr. Wittberg would say, with close medical oversight, um, which is absolutely <laughs> correct, um, we can b- do better for our patients, right? Um, and I didn't mean to go on a political tirade about this stuff during an ECMO episode, but uh, no, I and uh, this is one of those things where, like, I think it's like the hot thing that EMS clinicians see that you know on Facebook or on Netflix, and they're like, "Oh man, I, I wish we could do this." Um, or like Reboa, right? Like uh, we're gonna be doing a Reboa okay. talk. Like, but like then you, I like I see, I, and uh, I don't know if we were recording when I described the experience I had when I saw a cannulation. My, you know, and it like blew my mind. Like for the first time in a while, I was like. Oh my God, like what is going on in here? And I mean, it's a, cause it's the patient's critical and the intervention that they're doing, but, um, that, that sort of clinical presence. And I, and honestly, I kind of lost my train of thought, uh, on that little tirade, but w- we need that education. We need that, uh, you know, that training and the, that medical know-how that clinical, uh, know-how. And I think that's, I mean, that is 100% part of our mission here to, uh, get, uh, you know, EMS clinicians in the street, the, that kind of uh, knowledge. And that's why we bring experts like you onto our show. And uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. This has been great. Yeah. I'll talk about ECMO till I'm blue in the face. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, is there anything else that, I mean, I know we went through a lot of different things. Um, is there anything from your notes that we missed that you would want on like this initial general ECMO episode? Um, we can definitely do more episodes at a later date on ECMO as well. I would love to have you on when we record with, uh, um, Dr. Galvano, I think that'll be great um, as well. Yeah, if, if you're interested, uh, I, I would love to. I think I think what we've done right now is like a really good brief overview on ECMO, kind of like an ECMO 101. Like this is ECMO, this is what it can do, this is why you would want to do it, um, and just kind of gives you a good general background because you hear the word ECMO and it's it it's kind of big and scary and like you talked about your first experience seeing an echo cannulation and I, I can mirror that like the very first time I was involved in a cannulation. It's very big. It's very scary. And even knowing, um, like having a knowledge of anatomy and physiology and what ECMO does is still terrifying. So starting with the basics, I think takes away a little bit of that anxiety about it. So I th- and that's the, that's the last thing that I'll say in regards to, I won't go on another tirade, but I fundamentally believe that when, uh, when things are going downhill, right. And you're in the back of an ambulance, it's two in the morning. It's just you and your partner and your patient is going down the drain. If you have that, uh, that knowledge, that anatomy and physiology knowledge, right. And you understand the disease process that's going on. At least for me, I feel more comfortable in understanding what's going on and what I can do to fix it. And that's how I personally believe that I have, over time with experience, become a better clinician. Um, I, I could not imagine how scary it is when you see someone that's diaphoretic, pale, and, uh, you know, with pulmonary edema, but you don't understand how, like, circulation works, 
right? And you're just right. seeing this like magic thing happening that's killing your patient, but and you know you have to do this thing, but you don't know why this thing works. And then you mm-hmm. do, and then you do this thing, this positive pressure, and now your patient's hypotensive, and you don't understand any of that, yeah. right? So yeah, and you're like, oh, I thought I fixed my patient. I did. I checked box A, yes. and they didn't get better. <laughs> yeah, and I and um, this is a personal opinion of mine. I feel that many people that are very, very, very conservative, conservative clinicians, um, maybe they've had a bad experience with the intervention that they did and they don't know why it went wrong and no one reviewed it with them. And now they're like, mm-hmm. whether it's a conscious or subconscious decision, they don't want to do that again because they don't want to be put in that position again. But that's another right. conversation. Uh, Ken, you got anything? No, I really don't. I thought that was a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate your time, Aaron. Yeah, um, happy to be here. And, yeah, uh, it's a great topic that a lot of people don't understand much about, um, and uh, I, I found it very enlightening myself. Thank you so much. Uh, so, Aaron, we'll definitely be in contact. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Ken, you want to finish up? All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to the Alert Medic One podcast. Please check out our website. It's www.alertmedic1.com. Check us out on Facebook at Alert Medic One. Check us out at Twitter, uh, Alert underscore Medic One. And most importantly, please subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice. Listen uh, to our episodes, leave us a rating and a review, and let us know if there are topics you want to see us cover. Thank you, everybody. As always, have a safe night. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.